The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Wall Street is open again, and it's booming. From Morgan Stanley to BlackRock, the world's top investment banks and money managers are back in their offices, and they're super busy with mergers, IPOs, LBOs, and other activities thumping. Plus, Soho House and Wise go public, and green hydrogen megalomania on the Congo River. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from a very much back-to-work Manhattan. Having gone around the big investment banks and money managers this week, I can tell you with absolute certainty that Wall Street is not only back, it's freaking booming. The corporate advisory business in particular is thumping with M&A, initial public offerings, debt underwriting, and leveraged buyout activity reaching new highs, and pipelines apparently bulging with future deals. In fact, when I asked one of the top M&A advisors how things could go any better, he said, if we could hire the people fast enough to meet the business that's coming our way. Other than that, there's nothing. John Foley, our U.S. editor and Wall Street columnist, breaks some of this down with me. After that, I hand the mic over to Peter Thal Larson and Liam Proud in London to go over two of the more interesting IPOs coming out of Europe, Soho House, the private club operator, and Wise, the payments group. Their basic verdict, one is a buy, the other, well, a beware. And later in the show, I'll hand over to colleagues in Hong Kong and Melbourne to dissect a new green mega project cooked up by Fortescue Metals chairman Andrew Twiggy Forrest. Australia's richest man is the latest in a line of developers over the decades, hoping to tap the vast power of the Congo River, this time to generate green hydrogen. Give a listen. So, John, we seem to have traded places. You are in uh, the UK, just coming out of quarantine for five days. Congratulations. I'm in New York, where I've spent the last couple of weeks. And um, I don't know about you, but I've seen it. It's extraordinary to see how thumping, how alive, how awake this city is compared to Europe. Absolutely. I've left New York just at the wrong moment. I'm now in rural Yorkshire, which is the opposite of thumping. And people are now buckling down for Delta variants and Delta plus variants. And it feels, I have to say, it feels very different. On the yeah. Side. Are people vaccinated there the same way they are? I mean, here, they're, the masks are basically off. Uh, everyone's, I mean, pretty much everyone uh, seems to be vaccinated, at least <laughs> judging by the fact they've taken off their masks. And in most places, most offices and, and, and restaurants seem to have a um, honor system in place. Yeah. And, and, and I think people feel fairly comfortable with that. I mean, here in, here in Britain, of course, it's going a bit more slowly. They've had slightly different policies of spacing out the vaccines. And now everyone is slightly freaking out because it turns out having one shot is not anywhere near as good as having two. Um, I think they're getting that, you know, I think they're getting there. It's now a ra- like everywhere, really, isn't it? It's just a race to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And also in the US, as we've seen, although places like New York have really high vaccination rates, I think it's now f- more than half of New Yorkers are fully vaccinated. You've got other places like Tennessee, um, you know, Utah, places where the vaccination rate is much lower. But those places don't have Wall Street. And uh, I've spent the last few days just going around some of the big investment banks, some of the big institutions. Uh, and I am it is amazing how what they everyone to a, a person tells me that they've never seen anything quite like this. They are busier than they've ever been, that business can't get better almost. Yeah, it's it's back to it's kind of back to normal, except for the kind of non-mandatory mask wearing that you see in the offices of some of these big companies for people who haven't been vaccinated. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, what is my sense of what's going on out there is that um, that this will, of course, lead the rest of the world. In other words, what what's happening in Wall Street? You saw James Gorman this week, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, essentially. Um, well, let's just say Morgan Stanley said you need to be vaccinated if you come to the office. And right. I, I, yeah. I suspect this is basically going to be the policy at pretty much ma- every major financial institution. Uh, yeah. In, every, yeah, I agree. And I feel Gorman, you know, Morgan Stanley, this is the shot heard around the world, really, isn't it, in terms of like, <laughs> out policy, because Gorman is in a kind of peculiar situation because Morgan Stanley is, is the best performing Wall Street firm. You know, he's been in the job for a good decade and is actually the most highly paid U.S. Wall Street anyway CEO. So he can kind of say what he likes and like what he says. But certainly i think that what he said which is bolder than what i think any other financial firm said apart from maybe blackrock to say that you actually can't come into our offices in new york city unless you've been vaccinated i think the other firms will now start to start to copy that he's kind of given them cover to lay down similar policies but it's going to make some people quite cross because people don't necessarily want to disclose their status and in some cases they don't want to get vaccinated at all I yeah, that may be true, uh, and I, I'm not sure that James or Morgan Stanley were, yeah, as you say, Larry Fink at BlackRock, uh, Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone, or uh, David Solomon at Goldman Sachs are too worried about that small contingent of their workforce. Yeah, I think, and, and exactly, it's easy to say this. When, you know, Morgan Stanley, for example, more than ninety percent I've heard of their staff in New York and sort of Greater New York City. Are vaccinated, so really, it's low-hanging fruit to say this. I mean, you, and you started by saying, you know, we're, we're not in Utah, but we're in Wall Street. But actually, a lot of Wall Street is now spread around places like Utah. So it would be difficult for Goldman Sachs, say, which has you know thousands of staff in Salt Lake City, to impose this policy on you know globally. Ditto someone like Citi or J.P. Morgan. They have staff in Tennessee. They have staff in um, you know some of the, some of the southern states where people really aren't vaccinated. So they're going to be more cautious. Morgan Stanley is saying this because it can for a number of reasons. Yeah, I think part of that is, of course, those offices in places like uh, Salt Lake City are engineering and back office. Not They're not so much the front office. I mean, when you go around New York City and you talk to investment bankers and underwriting experts and people like that, they are out and about. They're doing pitches. They're, they're dealing with clients. Uh, so it seems to me it's kind of more obvious that they would be uh, that they would feel it's important to take the vaccine. That's the other right. thing is, you know, I mean, just sort of turning to the business, I don't know you, know, you what, what your sense of it is, but you, of course you've covered their numbers in the first, first quarter, which were uh, astounding in many cases. Uh, they, it, is a, it is extraordinary to hear how busy they all are, uh, whether it's equity capital markets with tons of IPOs going on, and even with the sort of bloom off the rose of the SPAC bubble, there's still tons of work that's being done there, not least of which is the so-called de-spacking, you know, taking that that money that's been raised in these blank check uh, vehicles and then actually spending it. Uh, now, while we're no longer at like five deals a morning, it seems to be seven or eight a week. Those are still those are still pretty chunky, uh, you know, M&A mandates. M&A seems to be uh, I think every M&A person I talked to this week is saying, look, we've never seen a pipeline. We haven't seen a pipeline this big in years, possibly ever. And and that's so that bodes well for them for the future. Debt capital markets are still just banging. Uh, I saw one guy this week who was, you know, there were there was that conversation about you know how big an LBO 
will be done over the next few months. And and and, and the, this this ex- expert's view was really doesn't depend on the debt markets. Anything could get $100 billion LBO could be done. It's just how much equity you can get. And that's a function of how much the private equity firms have or would like to commit or you know how many of them would actually band together for a deal like the Medline one that you wrote about. But it is it is uh, it struck me that uh, this is this is a this is a Goldilocks moment for Wall Street. It is, and and it's interesting when when we think back to the first quarter. The first quarter was incredibly good for all of these institutions, and you know Goldman Sachs reported a return on equity in the first quarter that was its best since 2009. I think it was 30 more than 30 percent, which is crazy. Um, but at the time we were saying, you know, this is because the markets are incredibly frothy and trading revenue is is really good, but this isn't going to last. So the, so the banks have been kind of buttering people up for a slightly slower second quarter and i think in terms of the markets that's possibly right but what's really like continued to go gangbusters as you say is is deals is mna yeah corporate finance is 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 just absolutely off the charts so while the trading boom of course has 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 slowed down they all seem to recognize that that as you say the first quarter for some of these folks will when they never ever be um surpassed or met again it almost doesn't it just doesn't matter because the those high value-added low capital intensity businesses uh, like um, advisory are are really doing incredibly well. And, and in, in fact, these things are kind of related, right? Because the markets were pumped up with money basically by the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world. And that kept, that's what created the trading boom. But that's still, you know, companies are still sitting on loads of cash returns from many kinds of assets very low so they're looking to do deals people are happy to buy i mean there was an ipo that we wrote about recently called sentinel with sentinel one which is a kind of a cyber security firm but you know it's got a market cap or it's going for a market cap of about seven billion dollars you know that's about twice what it was like you know a year ago and and you know these companies just keep growing and and the market keeps tolerating these sort of insanely fast growing valuations and while while that's happening the banks are just going to make hay yeah the valuation question is really interesting And, and 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 it's not clear how it how it all ends right or how there is a sense that it is going at some point it will it will end with a bit of a thud um, it, and a thud would be better than than the alternative, which is a crash. Uh, there isn't. I, mean, I asked a lot of people. Okay, so what what gets us there? What is the thing that makes that happen? What is the catalyst? And doesn't seem like there's anything. I mean, the, the, except this idea of inflation, you know, being yeah. non not not just transitory. You know, going from a you know pandemic where there was so little demand. Uh, and supply was cut, and then we had you know this big boom, and everybody's back out and wants to get airline tickets and go to concerts, and therefore they're paying big prices, and that's all transitory and comes. But there is a, there is a sort of everyone sort of you can see them visibly, you know, kind of fidget in their seat when you start talking about inflation, and then the potential response by policymakers, central banks, Federal Reserve, um, to that, which is to raise rates. I think that's I think that's right, and I think. Um, I mean, the other kind of wild card here is whether we get uh, a very damaging second or are we on the third now wave of COVID and whether that really mm. damages the economy outside of the kind of coastal cities. But I think in, I think because like, I would have said that the thing might stop it would be like heavy losses caused by, you know, a spec that goes bust or some of these meme stocks um, imploding. But even that hasn't really done. Those are like, it's funny when you ask more about that, when you really look at it, these are just tiny little corners. You know, they, now they may, if you add them up, whether it's cryptocurrency, whether it's SPACs, whether it's the meme stocks, they all 
in and of themselves are quite small, right? The, the, the total combined capitalization of cryptocurrencies in the world is what less than Apple's market cap, for instance. But, but at the same time, you know, they all are flashing signals of some something else. One could make that case. Um, but, it, but, that, but you're right. If one of them fall, fails because there's a lot of fraud in a bunch of these SPACs, which we've already kind of seen, um, or, or the currency stuff, cryptocurrency stuff just comes off the boil. But it's not obvious how that is systemic. To me, it's just more, it's, it's weirdly, rem, uh, it's a reminder of just of the sentiment that's out there, which seems to be very speculative. But also, the, you know, we tend to think that speculative investors buy in and then sell out and run away. But if you look at Bitcoin, for example, even Bitcoin, Bitcoin's halved in the last roughly month, couple of months. Mm. But still, people are holding on. They're holding it because, they, you know, as long as they've got money to keep speculating, they'll hold on and they'll wait for it to go up again. So, th so what you might normally think would be the thing that bursts the bubble hasn't. It's like caused some sell offs and then people just come back in again because they still believe things are going to go up and because they can afford for now to help to, you know, to the opportunity cost of leaving that money in Dogecoin or Bitcoin or GameStop right. or whatever it may be. So I think it's going to have to be inflation, uh, inflation or COVID, uh, the, you know, Delta plus variants that are the things that could bring this to an end. And if that doesn't happen, then the banks are going to have an amazing second quarter and an amazing third quarter and et cetera. Who et cetera. knows? Maybe more. I mean, as, as you also saw, Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone was saying, you know, that the, the tax code changes, the possibility of raising capital gains taxes may drive more activity as family owners like the folks at Medline, which you wrote about, um, are sell out before they have to pay a huge capital gain. So you've got that activity that that, of course, will be uh, helping the private equity guys. And that's sort of policy driven. I mean, it's U.S. tax policy driven. Uh, should it should it pass? And which of course, like with everything in the U.S. Congress is a is not a it's not a given. Uh, and then you just have this sort of pent up animal spirits, I suppose. It's just we all have them as individuals, right? Getting out, going out to a bar and going out to I went to my first Yankees game in two years this weekend and I was or this week and I was not alone. Right. There are a lot of people who feel that now. Now, imagine you're the CEO of a company and you've been sitting around doing lots and lots of reading and and chomping at the bit and 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 looking at strategies because you spend so much time doing all this stuff. You're now no longer running around the way you had been. Yeah. You can imagine that they've crafted all sorts of interesting ideas. They've got cash on their balance sheets, as you say, and their stock prices are at record highs and they've got their investment bankers knocking on their doors again. Uh, this is, uh, it feels to me like it could go on. Of course, as you say, if it goes on too much, we get that inflation, things get a little freaky there and, and rates go up and, and every all bets are off. And of course, God forbid, another variation of coronavirus, which would send us all back into our caves. Yeah, or a successful increase in the capital gains tax rate is going to put the yeah. dump on this. All right. Well, thanks, John. Enjoy Yorkshire. And I'll be in Europe when you get back here. Thanks, Rob. Hi, I'm George Hay, Associate Editor of Breaking Views in London. I'm joined by my fellow UK-based columnists, Peter Tarr Larson and Liam Proud. And we're talking about two very different UK companies that recently said they're planning to list their shares. So let's start with Soho House. Uh, Peter, you're our upmarket's clubs correspondent. Um, what is it that uh, founder and CEO Nick Jones is planning to do? Well, he's taking Soho House public, which is really quite amazing because um, um, if you've been around for quite a long time, like I have, you remember Soho House opening in London in the mid-1990s when it was kind of a place for sort of people who worked in media and advertising 
to go and get a drink in a nice environment uh, when Soho didn't have that many nice places to go and drink. And actually, I mean, I sort of followed it over the years and as it's expanded, but I didn't really realize until they filed their their listing documents this week, um, quite a big, how big a business it's become. I mean, it's got, they now have 28 Soho houses around the world, places like Toronto and Tel Aviv. They're planning to open another 18. Um, you know, they've got WeWork type co-working spaces. They've got a beach club in Greece. They've opened another club for city people in the city of London, which they're also planning to roll out. There's even a website where you can go and buy like Soho house furniture and bed linen and various other things. So it's this it's this massive enterprise. It's got 120,000 members. Um, and so he's really done an extraordinary job over the past 25 years, just just taking this this idea, this quite niche idea of a private members club and making it a, a global business. Excellent. So um Liam, you've been looking at a rather different business, maybe slightly more prosaic business called Wise. They're a payments firm and they're also looking to list their shares, but they're planning to do something a bit different. Yeah, so I mean, there's several things that are interesting about Wise. Um, and just a note for our listeners, they may know the company as TransferWise. Um, it changed its yeah, name recently, rather confusingly. Um, unwise decision, perhaps. But they... Um, they're essentially it's a it's a foreign exchange specialist so they will allow you to move money across borders or to make payments in currencies that aren't your home country's currency um, without paying the extremely high fees that you would tend to incur if you did it through your retail bank for example um, and the interesting thing about their ipo is that they're just listing directly onto the stock market they're not doing a sort of full book building process with these you know investment bank roadshows nor are they raising any money or selling new shares so they're just gonna say one day we start trading there'll be a little auction and that will set the initial price um and so you'd probably expect a little bit of volatility um and even more so because they're doing some slightly strange things with the voting structure where existing shareholders will end up having more votes um, than investors who buy in after the direct listing. Okay, so um, and how much, Peter? How much um, significance should we um, set by the fact that uh, Soho House is listing in? It's, it's kind of an old economy, a business listing in New York, uh, whereas Wise is kind of rather the reverse. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, first of all, I, I think Soho House would object to the idea of an old economy business. And if you read oh, the sorry, prospectus, new, new, funky upmarket, cool, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very, it's trying very hard also to say, well, they've got an app and they're all these people. And they're going to have a sort of a digital only membership where you can be a, a Soho House member only online. What quite who wants to do that? I don't know. But um, <laughs> um, but obviously they know that better than I do. Um but I mean, I, th I think what's one of the things that's striking. So obviously they're listing in New York. I think one of the reasons they're doing that is because cha the, fa uh, the chairman, uh, who is Ron Burkle, the 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 super former supermarket executive, um, uh, wants to keep voting control of the business. So he and Nick Jones, the founder, and uh, uh, and one or two other people basically uh, will control the votes. Um, and unlike Wise in London, where which is which is doing that, but where those voting rights will expire over time. Um, uh, as in terms of the way the, the, the rules work in London, I think these guys will control the business, uh, uh, will be able to control the business indefinitely. But the right. other really striking thing about this is that is that Sarah House 
has yet to ever make a profit. It's 25 years old and it's never made a profit. And it's and obviously in the pandemic, its finances have really suffered. Uh, um, you know, its um, its revenues collapsed. It burned through 100 million dollars of cash in the first three months of 2021. Um, hmm. And it's quite interesting that a business that's been around that long is still struggling to to make a profit. Uh, although they would say that's because they're investing very very heavily. Uh, when you contrast that with Wise, which has been around what less than a decade, and is actually really quite a profitable business, isn't it, Liam? Yeah, it's quite a strange fintech, which is the the, the word that people use for financial technology companies. It's quite a strange fintech in that sense. The sort of um, you know the the general fintech model or the general tech model these days seems to be sort of gather a load of customers, put them in one place, um, raise a load of venture capital money in order to do that, um, and then sort of figure out how to make money afterwards. Um, this TransferWise now Wise um, sort of did it the other way around, where they said, well, actually no, let's just focus on a very specific kind of business proposition, which is we'll do cheap foreign currency payments. And that's all we'll do. Um, and we'll build that up sort of organically and do a lot of our own funding through our own cash flows. So they're profitable um, on a kind of, you know, P&L basis. And then if you look at the cash flow statement, they also generate a huge amount of cash, which is often the more important thing than whether or not you generate earnings, because that's actually how you fund yourself. Um, so we've sort of compared them to, you know, your Monzo's, Revolut's, Chimes, New Banks, these big kind of sexy consumer fintechs. Um, and they're probably not going to float with a kind of, you know, double digit billions kind of valuation. But I think you, you could probably make an argument that it's a better business than some of those other ones. And um, so that's interesting. But um, is there any kind of are there any other kind of um, advantages for Soho House of listing in uh, New York? Um, well, one thing that's quite eye catching about the uh, um, some of the details they put out the other day is how much Nick Jones gets paid, right? Yes, I think, I mean, I think, what was it? They paid him uh, a total compensation of 5.7 billion, it's 5.7 million US dollars, yeah. I think, last year, um, which, um, you know, in a year where uh, their business had collapsed as a result of the pandemic and, um, uh, you know, they were having to refinance their debt and various other things, um, I think would have, would have would have raised quite a lot of eyebrows with UK investors. Maybe US investors would be a bit more forgiving about that. But but it's clear that Soho House you know, they really need this IPO to keep going. They've got all these expansion plans, but they're not generating any cash at the moment. And so there's a big bet being made there on a sort of post-pandemic bounce. People will come back to these clubs. People will spend money in these clubs. They'll be able to open new clubs. And and they'll be able to sort of marry the, the idea of an exclusive club with having lots of clubs around the world and lots of members. Um, and then at some point also make a profit. But bearing in mind they haven't done that yet for 25 years, it's probably some way off. And um, uh, Liam, does um, the fact that Wise is uh, listing in uh, listing in London is that a uh, is that a kind of a coup for for London, or is uh, uh, is it just a, a kind of natural reflection of where they would obviously go? If I, if I were the you know UK finance minister, I'm sure I would argue so. Um, and we have seen them sort of crow about a lot of the the, the UK tech companies listing in the UK. Um, I mean, I think that there, there is an interesting debate about this founder control, these kind of um, super voting shares that, that Wise's um, existing shareholders are going to have. And I know something Peter's thought about a lot, but, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of kind of consternation um, about 
European uh, tech companies going and listing in New York. And there's this theory that we should relax the rules hugely in order to make sure that they they stay at home, um, so to speak. And and why is is not really taking advantage of any kind of special rules. It's just sort of doing, I mean, you can do this under the current rules, but you do just have to sort of accept that you might not be in certain in indices in certain stock indexes and you won't kind of have this forced passive fund buying. Um, so to answer your question, I, I, I wouldn't attach a huge amount of significance to it and I, I wouldn't read kind of directly across from a lot of the kind of political debate. Um, I don't know if Peter has a different view. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think they probably would have listed here anyway, but um, there's probably a sense that, that the mood music is slightly shifted in London towards sort of trying to attract these types of companies and uh, and maybe that persuaded them. And obviously the, the big carrot is that at some point they will be part of the um, uh, what's called the premium listing. It will have a premium listing in, in London um, uh, when the rules change and, and on, on, on super voting shares. And that will then allow them to be a uh, member of the FTSE 100 index, and then we'll also attract a lot of, of investment from, from index funds and so forth. So um, I think there is probably some appeal, uh, some of the political kind of mood music changing has probably helped attract them, but um, who knows, they, may, they might well have listed in London anyway. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on both of those situations. Um, so I'll say thanks to my colleagues, uh, Liam Pride and Peter Tull Larson. So I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I am talking remotely with my comrade, Anthony Curry, about a massive, ambitious renewable energy deal in the Democratic Republic of Congo by Fortescue Metals. This sounds really ambitious, billions of dollars in play. What exactly is this, the, the plan, Anthony? Well, it's still a little bit up in the air, but the general idea is that Fortescue has been given by the country the right to be the lead developer of what is called the Grand Inga plan, and that's been kicking around for decades. So the idea is that, is that you can place a series of dams, and I think it's six or about six, I think that they can add to the two, the two very old ones already there. You can dam the river, the Congo River, uh, and use its, I think quite a precipitous 100, 200 meter drop to produce 40 gigawatts of, of electricity. So just to put that in context, that is more than twice the amount that the Three Gorges Dam currently produces. And the idea is that it will probably cost around $80 billion to do. That, though, is a number that's from several years ago. And, you know, these things generally have a tendency to creep up in price. Well, so so this, this plan has been underway. What have been the problems before? There's There's been a couple companies have taken a swing. BHP mentioned yep. the Spanish company Actividades de Construcción y Servicios. Uh, yep. what, what's the problem? Well, I think on one hand, you've got to acknowledge the political risk, right? So it's not as if the DRC has been a particularly stable country. Now, whether that's changed or not is another matter. But over the past few decades, it's hardly been stable uh, long enough. Um, there are so a lot of social issues to deal with. And certainly these days, we're thinking more about climate and governance and social issues as well. But you know, over the years, it's not just been that. It's also been, well, what do you do with the electricity? So 
it's not as if the Democratic Republic of Congo needs all of that electricity, or should I say at least hasn't got yet got the capacity to deal with that kind of electricity. So the idea was that they would sell it to, say, South Africa, which would take some of it, or elsewhere in Africa. But then you've got the problem of transporting it over power lines, which is exceptionally inefficient. And I think over time, a lot of the people who are looking at it thinking, well, this would be good to do, but it's inefficient, we need new technology or something else, so why worry about it? Also, I think there's been a, an increasing recognition among a lot of the funders, especially for the uh, among the international community and the sort of the development banks. To, um, it's not a good idea to fund dams. There are many reasons not to. Um, they are environmentally destructive. The water will often, certainly in warmer, the warmer the place gets, the more likely you're going to lose 20, 30 percent of any water that's standing in the reservoir. And you know it, it also affects water quality and soil quality downstream. So yeah, hits farmers, for example, who won't have such good access to really good soil. That's not so important in this case because of that precipitous drop that I mentioned earlier. So you don't need the kind of gargantuan storage areas behind the dams that you've got in so many. But nonetheless, it's still you know, a, a big risk you've got to take into account in addition to political risk, in addition to what you do with moving electricity. Now your piece talks about it being used to generate hydrogen for export. That sounds okay on first glance. What's the yeah, problem? So I think look, you do need people with a huge amount of ego and a huge amount of money to get ideas going to try and tackle climate change, right? So I think mm-hmm. from that perspective, Andrew Forrest, who is the founder and now chairman of Fortescue here in Australia, um, it's great to see him coming up with with ideas for doing something. And he's been on a on a couple of several month tours over the past eight months or so trying to jar up support for his plans for green hydrogen, green ammonia. And that is the, the idea being that you don't use fossil fuels to create the, the hydrogen, which is what some people talk about. I think it's called blue hydrogen. And you therefore then try and store the carbon somewhere that you're producing, uh, which is exceptionally expensive and not yet been a proven technology. But it's also not yet a proven technology that you can convert or use all of that energy you're creating from hydroelectricity and convert that into hydrogen power, which you can then very easily move around, or at least easily enough, store and move around. So yeah, it, it is an emerging technology, and these things are really important. You want emerging technology. You're going to need emerging technology. I mean, otherwise, if we didn't care about emerging technology, we'd still be, what, living in caves, lighting fires. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's but more- what's, the, what's the new technology here? I mean, the dam is not new. No, it's it's putting I think hydrogen it's, is like, what, what's the new part? I think it's the ability to store and transfer it, right? So I think there's uh, there is a recognition that that still needs to be working. Even even Forrest himself mm-hmm. has said, look, we need still this still needs a lot of work, and there's nothing wrong with trying. There's nothing wrong with pushing for it, okay? But um, well, unless of course you waste an enormous amount of money building a huge environmentally destructive dam that yes, exactly. doesn't have a mark market exactly. for its power. Exactly. So, um, it, that, but that's that's the other thing here, right? So let's assume it were to work. Let's assume you've got the technology. Let's assume you can get this built. It may still cost a lot more than the 80 billion. We dug up a report from the Oxford University um, uh, about seven or eight years ago that said that on average, uh, the price of constructing large dams ends up being 96% more than initial estimates. So if you think they're talking about $80 billion from several years ago, then you know you could double that if you wanted, or maybe it goes up 50%, whatever it is, it's a huge increase. And again, in a, in a, in a country that has not been particularly, sta- particularly sta- politically or particularly stable over the past, well, name your decades. Well, uh, remember the line they had about uh, uh, good intentions. Um, <laughs> uh, it sounds like <laughs> maybe a pat on the back and back to the drawing board. Um, 
well, uh, I mean, for Mr. Forrest. To an extent, but he's, he's also got to address other issues, right? So um, I think his general idea is that let's export this to where it's needed. And while the first plan of using uh, hydroelectric power and then transferring it down to, say, South Africa along inefficient power lines wasn't particularly a good one, the idea he's got is let's take the power we're going to generate in Africa and export it to Europe, which... I don't know that. <laughs> Fine, the Democratic Republic of Congo wants the money. Fine, but it also smacks of colonialism to a great extent, right? So you don't really want to do that. Also, if you're sending it to Europe, uh, and uh, our, our colleagues in in London, uh, one of them in particular, Ed Cropley, has been looking at this. Um, there's going to be about 300 uh, gigawatts of uh, of energy produced from wind power in the North Sea that could be used to to, to produce. Um, hydrogen electricity or hydrogen power in the continent, in the UK, in the continent anyway. So 40 gigawatts is going to have to somehow uh, deal with that. And the fact that most of these wind terminals or wind, uh, wind turbines are already built or being built and the infrastructure is already in place, whereas it's not in place in the DRC. So all these things are racking up against it. Again, let's let's acknowledge that um, forest is uh, it's great to have someone whose wealth has quadrupled because of iron ore mining that his company Fortescue does. His wealth has quadrupled over the past two or three years. His uh, company's stock price is up 400% over the past three or four years. All It's great to see someone in that position who's still producing uh, carbon emissions in his own projects back here in Australia. Nonetheless, stand up and say, we need to sort this out. I'm going to put my money behind it. That is great, but you're getting into really big projects that kind of smack of megalomania than they do of, of rationality. All right. Well, look, I think that's all the time we've got. Thanks for chatting with me, Anthony. No worries. Thank you, Pete. That's our show for this week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your high-quality podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Take care.